The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The following podcast contains explicit language. (sighs) Mom, you're exhausted. It takes a lot of work to take the spirit and character out of a book. But now it's as inoffensive as a Sunday in Cincinnati. Once there was a cisgender girl named Clara. She lived in South America fighting for wild horse rescue. And net neutrality. This new Clara sounds like she starts out pretty perfect. You betcha. But since she's already evolved, she doesn't really have an emotional journey to complete. Nope. Kind of means there's no point to the book. Well, what am I supposed to do? It's hard to say. Something that started decades ago and was applauded and inoffensive is now politically incorrect. What can you do? Some things will be dealt with at a later date. If at all. Hey all, welcome to Represent. I'm Aisha Harris. So we are back from our hiatus briefly, and I'm excited to say that rejoining me. Uh, well, we have two guests today. One of them is coming back to the show. We have the Kondabolu brothers, Hari and Ashok. Welcome to the show, y'all. Thank hello, you for hello. having us. Yeah. Uh, Hari, the last time I saw you mm-hmm. was last fall, actually. Mm-hmm. We we had that conversation, that great, amazing conversation about the, the... Wonderful. Yes. The problem with the poo. And then I, you were very gracious enough to ask me to um, moderate the panel that mm-hmm. you hosted before the world premiere at the New York City Doc Festival. So that was fun to do, and it's great to have you back. Oh, it's a pleasure to be back. It's uh, it's funny. I feel like, you know, the, on the show today, we're going to be talking about, like, movies that we thought were... Or TV shows that we thought... Um, that we loved that became problematic when we analyzed them. And, uh, yeah, so I'm not going to do The Simpsons just because <laughs> I feel like I made a whole film covering that particular topic. But. I know. I know. I'm I'm sure you were so tired of talking about it at this point, but it was recently, obviously, yeah. brought back into the news because of The Simpsons recently brought it back into the news um, by airing that episode about uh, Lisa wrestling with this faux uh, story that Marge was telling her um, that was very problematic but was very near and dear to Marge's heart and you know the scene where they're talking about like what can you do with these problematic characters and then it pans to a a framed photo of of um, uh, Apu, Apu yeah. because Lisa keeps a framed photo of Apu. Yeah. The desk. Um, I mean, I think the framed yeah. photo, I think, was a reference to the vegetarian episode where they become right. close and don't have a cow as a reference to like she, she had support and vegetarianism, but it has the double meaning in that particular moment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it it sucks because you know, with other examples of TV shows from our childhoods and stuff, you can look at them and revisit them, and that's it is what it is. And you you watch it knowing that's just part of the time period. And and as I think as anybody who's marginalized, you just kind of like you accept this wasn't made for me exactly. Mm -hmm. So just accept those aspects because we have no choice but to and and do the best we can. When something is still a living, breathing thing like The Simpsons, it's still something that gets shaped actively. 
it, it's not just a matter of um, you know it was in the past. It actually has the possibility of uh, rewriting history a little bit and still being interesting. I mean, the thing is, the Simpsons' biggest criticism, the the thing that people say the most, is that they're they recycled plots, and there's well, how much more can you do? And there's a lot more you can do depending on how you want to open those characters up. For so for them to kind of dismiss the whole discussion with uh, you know what can you do and a claim of you know things that were once applauded are now politically incorrect. I mean, and they engage in pretty radical character transformations before with other characters. So it's weird that I feel that they may might not have gotten whatever response they wanted when that happened. So right. now they figure they double back on this. Well, I feel like the whole idea of political incorrectness it, it to me is doesn't mean anything politically correct politically incorrect like it, th- those words don't mean anything when you use them to dismiss another argument that's not specific it's like when people say something is problematic unless they explain why it, it, it's a placeholder term it just means i don't like it mm-hmm. you have to explain why and and so what the simpsons did is when they threw th- the idea that something was once applauded which not everybody was applauding by the way they just couldn't hear us right like booing actively um is is now and was critically lauded it was critically lauded because again we didn't have we didn't get to vote for an emmy you know Mm -hmm. what i mean yeah but uh, to to say that something is correct you just immediately threw it into another discussion that's an active discussion that brings up a lot of anger so instead of uh, debating specifics or arguing about specifics it immediately becomes part of this larger debate about we can't say anything anymore people are too sensitive I mean, that's what they did. They just threw it into that. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I wasn't like trying to troll, but if I was, I won. You're not supposed to respond to me. <laughs> You're the Simpsons. You're supposed to just keep going, pretend nothing happened. The fact that they buckled like that to me is also an indication of like white fragility. Oh my God. So some somebody on a cable network said something about your show that's been on thirty years and everyone obviously like loves you and they don't really know what my critique completely is, but still because it damaged you in some small way, all the white writers freaked out and destroyed Lisa. What is that? That's like the example of white fragility. Yeah. In also no way acknowledge that there may have been some loss of quality in a show over 30 years that the characters may have drifted from where they started. Yeah. I mean, yeah. overall, I, I watched that episode uh, after all the hoopla. And that was, it was actually like the first episode, Simpsons episode I'd watched in maybe a decade. And <laughs> no, I'm being honest. I was, yeah. I was never a hardcore Simpsons fan to begin with. So like, it's not even just about the quality. We were obsessed just, with that show. I we know. watched it multiple times a day. And that's the thing that most, a lot of your critics have sort of ignored is the fact that this is coming from a place of admiration. Like yeah. you like mm-hmm. the show. It's not like you want to write off the entire history well, we, of the we show. Were obsessed. We watched yeah. every day after school at least two episodes the new episode every sunday like it was it was the show like everything would stop and we'd run to the you know we'd call out like simpsons on simpsons on and then we just run <laughs> to the t- you know the tv so and, and, and again it's the first 10 seasons after that really it gets hazy and if it's on it's on but like those first 10 seasons like we were like rest of america we were obsessed with it yeah well i know you're tired of talking about it we don't have to talk about that anymore but you both do have a fun new podcast out, yes. which is basically you touring and and being brothers and and talking about things that are interesting to you, but also commenting on uh, your perspectives as Indian American uh, comedians and and 
thinkers and, and culture makers, and it's called the Kondabolu Brothers. Did I pronounce that correctly? Yeah, Kondabolu. That's Kondabolu. Right. Okay, yeah. I'm always like nervous. No, you're actually <laughs> really good. It's kind of like crazy. I don't really don't know how to take how good. I, I, same thing. I think I said last time. I just I'm like, how are you getting our names right? <laughs> I'm not fishing for. I'm, I'm seriously just want to make sure I'm saying it right. Um, but yes, so you have the show happening. It's touring now. Can you talk a little bit about like what? Like you guys have worked together before, but is this the like the most like the most intensely you've worked together in like the public eye in this way? I'd say so. I, I mean, what we're doing is pretty much the same as the other shows we've done. We're just doing a lot more of them and with more production, mm-hmm. and also with like more support. You know, being on Earwolf as opposed to independently putting it out. You know, we get to be part of a network with a lot of other you know better known podcasts. But it's a venue we've mm. played, so I guess that feeling of like higher stakes doesn't come across because you're in the same physical space at least that's how I that's feel. when we're in Brooklyn when, right. we, when we do the show in Brooklyn um, but you know I definitely it's like a, it's a definitely a higher level I mean the production quality the the fact we have a producer mm. like Tim Barnes who's fantastic like I, I feel like that makes it uh, something that's you know kind of higher scale and also like I think I'm like I'm better known than I was when we started Ashok's better known than he was when, when we started that podcast and I feel like that helps you know, people are going to come in wondering, like, what is it? It's the guy from Das Racist and it's, it's oh, or the comedian I like. And it ends up not really being either of those things. It becomes, you know, two brothers talking. We say it at the beginning of every show, this podcast is about two brothers talking to themselves and occasionally acknowledging the audience. The next section of the show is called... That One Time in India... Shok and I uh, went to India often as, as, as kids, and we've went I mean, periodically since to visit our grandmother, and so we have all these stories. Yeah. Uh, one of the biggest, uh, one of the, I think our favorite time, I would say this is one of my favorite times when we were younger, yeah. when, in 1994, like I was like 11 or 12, where you were like went nine, mm-hmm. uh, we went to India, and we had all these friends that were there, like mm-hmm. a ton of... Yeah. Ton of kids, right around our age, right around our yeah. age, and some of the kids were older. And we'd all play. We'd play like Uno tournaments, right. and we we like we yeah, yeah meet up every day at somebody's house. Very yeah. you know, very the Sandlot. Yeah, very, it, right. honestly, it was like our version of the Sandlot. Right. You know, when people ask what's the podcast about, it's always tricky because it really is a personality-driven one. I mean, it's about race and it's about New York and it's about growing up and it's about immigrants and it's about pop culture, a lot of pop culture, and it's about like current events. But it's it's also not really about any of those things. It's about wherever a conversation between two brothers happens to go with a few things on a PowerPoint to help trigger that conversation. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's honest. And, and to me, you know, the idea that it always needs a hook is interesting because I feel like when something is you know, like a white personality, you don't need to explain what it is. It's just like it's, just, it's a white personality. But when it's like people of color, it has to be what is it narrowly? It's like whenever I've pitched a podcast with me and my mom, People are always kind of framing it as a. It's, it would be good to hear an immigrant woman's story. It's, she's a person first. <laughs> my, mo- my mother is funny and interesting. And yes. has a lot of stories. Yeah, and that's what it is. Like I, I don't it, the narrowness. No one's like I just want to hear the uh, a white male perspective. No, you just think the person's interesting and subconsciously the right. power is in their white maleness. But like you're not thinking about that. Yeah. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. 
there are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. So I want to pivot that into what we call our pre-woke watching segment, Mm. which uh, we've done on the show a few times, and I know our listeners really enjoy it. And actually, now that I think about it, we haven't had too many of our, like, quote-unquote celebrities actually participate. So I'm excited for for us to You deserve better than us. Oh, (laughs) please. (laughs) So for those who might just be tuning into this, uh, it's been a little while since we've done a pre-woke watching segment. But for those who aren't familiar, this is when we discuss uh, films or TV TV shows or even just characters um, who we once loved and were really just over the moon about. And then somewhere along the line, we became, I don't know, more educated, more aware of our surroundings and of the world and began to question these uh, things that we used to love. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you hate it. Uh, It's kind of like The Simpsons. It's like it's a love-hate relationship. Uh, But it does mean you look at it with a more acute uh, eye. So... I think you guys are doing separate ones, correct? Yes. All right. Well, Hari, do you want to start? Well, I'm going to pick Back to the Future uh, because, as people know at this point, things I have loved my whole life, I like to destroy publicly now. You you ruin things. I ruin things. I'm a killjoy. <laughs> Back to the Future like, is still one of my favorite all-time movies, and it, it's hard because every time I watch it, and I do watch it a lot, there's a ton of stuff that is so unfortunate about <laughs> you, small points and big points in the film. Um, for example, uh, in the film, it implies that Marty McFly, Michael J. Fox's character, invented rock and roll. All right, guys, uh, listen, this is the blues riff and B. Watch me for the changes and try and keep up, okay? All of a sudden, he's doing Chuck Berry at a... Uh, at a high school dance and all the other musicians who were black are like, what is this music? <laughs> so literally a white guy is changing history and creating rock and roll. So that obviously is, is upsetting. When did you, do you recall, you grew up with that movie, but do you recall when you realized that that scene was really kind of just anachronist, but not even just anachronist, but like kind of offensively anachronist. I mean, I think it's when I got older and I started to realize what the history of rock music was and the fact that like, you know, this was black music that white people co-opted and they would even do covers of black artists who'd previously released the record and they're the ones who got the hit out of it. I think... Like, did Pat, like Tutti Frutti was a bigger hit, I think, for Pat Boone than it was for Little Richard, which is r- ridiculous because who's Pat Boone now and Little Richard's Little Richard? So, you know, that certainly at some point, I think, either someone mentioned it to me or I watched it again with that in mind. And it's like, what the hell? Did he actually just claim that? <laughs> I mean, the stuff with women throughout that film is upsetting. Like, his girlfriend is essentially just a prop. You know, like, he, she's in it. At a certain point, she, like... I think she passes out or something happens where she's really not in the movie. So I think she's played by Elizabeth Shue. Great right. actress. Yes. So she that's one thing. Secondly, there's the, the thing it's his mom and his dad and how they meet and stuff. So in order for um his father to meet his mother and everything to work out the way it's supposed to do, Biff Tannen, who's the the bully of that high school and is like one of the meanest people in that town, he takes Lorraine to the dance i think and attempts to rape her in a car at which point michael j fox's character is supposed to like hit him in the face and like 
win her affection. Yeah, defend that, her honor. Yeah. yeah. So one, there's an attempted rape scene in the movie that the son is witnessing, mm-hmm. which is very weird. It's a priv- uh, pivotal plot point. Pivotal key. And so the implication is that if the father doesn't step in, then they'll never get together. Not including the part if the father doesn't step in, this woman will be raped. That uh, it's it's more about making sure I exist. And my father ends up with my mother more than I don't want to see my mother raped by this man. Like, that's so bizarre. It gets I've totally, never thought of it that way. It's just so normalized. Like, oh, you know, guys are just going to, and then he has to, it's like ridiculous. Right. So that's certainly uh, really upsetting. Um, this is something that I, from the beginning I was like, this is a little weird. But just there's was it Lebanese terrorists. There's like Middle Eastern mm-hmm. terrorists in a scene that killed Doc Brown for some reason or another. And they're, they're you know, not speaking any particular language. It's like Arab, quote unquote. It's gibberish. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the tip of think of like what you, uh, you know, what, what the racist imagination thinks that a Middle Eastern <laughs> A van door slides open, there's gibberish and machine gun fire, and it closes. (laughs) And that really, I think, it very briefly encapsulates uh, how uh, Arabs and Middle Eastern people were seen in the era. In the 80s, That particular, just couple of minutes, gibberish, machine gun fire. Yeah. I mean, it also sounds like that could have, like, been in a movie today. Oh, or, right, right, or like right. even like five or ten years ago, like <laughs> now they the might peak. just possibly like give give them some language to speak. Yes, uh, even if it's like and some sort of live streaming setup would be involved. <laughs> right, 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 right. right. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. So I mean, that certainly uh, was another like, hey, this is really messed up. Like, what is the point of this? Um, also, the fact Doc Brown goes back in time along with Marty McFly, and their concerns are very about themselves. They don't stop slavery. They don't stop Columbus. There's all these things they could do, like which I find shocking. And you know, I, there's this movie that I've wanted to see forever. It stars Roberto Benigni and uh, Maisimo Traoisi, like the two of the biggest Italian actors of, of of that particular era. And I read about it. I've never seen it, but it's about these two guys that find a way to go back in time. These two Italian guys, and what they decide to do is stop Columbus so he doesn't kill the indigenous people. This film's being made so like much earlier than Back to the Future, and that's their first thought. Meanwhile, this guy's like, you know, I got to make sure my parents meet and this all, and I'm not going to do anything. I'll invent black and uh, black and roll. I'm going to invent. <laughs> I'm going to invent rock and roll and steal it from black people that gets in but not i'm going to do anything useful so clearly it's like written for like a white imagination yeah oh man i mean all of all of that i was aware of although i never thought about the sort of rape the oh. way in which the actual to, story hinges to dr on brown's that. credit how much could one mid 60 year old man have done to fight those forces I mean, I don't Presumably know. Presumably he'd build a, a team who would believe him. That's a, that's a taller order that they I believe mean, him. I mean, think about this. This is some in this film we've had to suspend so much disbelief at this point. They're 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 crisscrossing time periods. There's alternate worlds that somehow don't exist. Like mm-hmm. every if there's you believe in the butterfly effect, even if you get your his mom and dad together, you know, there's all sorts of stuff. Right. Yeah, there's all sorts of stuff that's already like Marty McFly shouldn't exist because genetically the things have changed, time has changed. So who knows if he was conceived in the same moment? There's mm-hmm. all sorts of weird stuff. Mm-hmm. So I mean, at so this, why not? Why not? I why mean, not? he goes back in the part threes in the Wild West. You know what I mean? <laughs> like the whole thing uh. is really bizarre. So I mean, it, all sorts of things could. 
happen, but there, none of that imagination is used. I mean, it, it's it's just fascinating to me to think about this movie was made in the 80s, was set 30 years earlier, but the way it just goes back to the way in which every anytime we think about the future or the present, uh, we are still thinking about it in a very um, white um, oftentimes misogynist yeah. way um, that ignores all of the problems that that uh, these things have. I mean, I, I think a movie that sort of did a better job of dealing with these things, if not completely better, but at least acknowledged these things, was like Pleasantville. Remember that movie? Mm. That's a great movie. Yeah, in Pleasantville uh, with Tobey Maguire and Reese, Reese, Witherspoon. Reese, Reese, yeah. Reese Witherspoon. I need to rewatch that. It's been a while. But like that at least acknowledged that like there was racism at that time and that there were issues. And obviously, it, it, I think that was supposed to be a more, more pointed sort of satire of the Leave it to Beaver era than uh, Back to the Future, which is very much like nostalgic in in a way that's uh, not as productive. Did they discuss slut shaming too? And... I think so, if I remember correctly. Yeah, there, there's like every, there's a lot of aspects of it that I think make it sort of an underrated gem. It's, it's a really a great film. Ajok, what about you? What would be your pre-will question. That's going to be a very difficult act to follow. <laughs> I don't have a great memory for, for the cultural artifacts of my youth, and I'm not, like, super sentimental, so I rarely revisit anything. I appreciate that. Um, except music. And then I, I remember um, growing up was mostly South Indian music. Mother had a few Donna Summer records and, and you know, uh, whatever pop and pop rap records would float in. Nice. But I remember, uh, you know, things like the Beatles, the Rolling Stones. I, I don't know what that was, you know. I never heard it when I was a child. I didn't know any of the names of the songs, but you know, I bet people would talk about these bands. So mm-hmm. when I was 14 or 15, uh, I don't remember where I got them. It might have been the library. I borrowed all the Beatles records and heard them through and was like, okay, I like some of these, but I think the earlier ones are kind of corny. Uh, and then and then the Rolling Stones. I, I listened to those like that four record period, and I was like, I like all of these. This guy's trying too hard. Um, and I was obviously cognizant that he, you know, that they ripped off black music. But the black music they ripped off, I wasn't aware of that source material at the time. And this was maybe like the year two thousand. And then I remember ten. 10 or 11 years later, after having listened to so many more different things, I was re- I was listening to some of the songs on Exile on Main Street at the end. Like, there's a song where he's like, uh, I don't want to walk, talk about Jesus, just see his face, but he's trying to do it in this falsetto, and there's, like, a black female choir behind him. And it's just hilarious now. I was like, the balls that this British dude had to like make album after album like this, especially that one that's supposed to be so like heartfelt. Yeah. It, it struck me more with more experience how ridiculous what these people were doing is. Even though I still like the Rolling Stones. Well, Lou Reed. Uh, like, whenever I hear Lou Reed and like that line where it's and the color girl saying, mm-hmm. like, "What Dude. the? What? Who are you, <laughs> yeah. Lou Reed?" It's so weird. he's making a fun pastiche about like drug-addled, you know, uptown sixties. Yeah, York. and with his lens, like his like, fun adventure we went on. Right. That's funny. Have you seen the uh, documentary Twenty Feet from Stardom? No. Oh, okay. So I. Oh, but the backup singers. Yes, right? all about yeah. the backup singers. Um, I it came out a few years ago. I know it was definitely. Uh, nominated for an Oscar, I don't, I can't remember if it, if it actually won, but it's just really fascinating documentary all about the predominantly black 
female mm. backup singers mm. who were, you know, playing, singing some of the biggest melodies and hits like for the Rolling Stones, yeah. um, for, uh, I'm not, I can't remember who else they profiled. I want to say maybe Rod Stewart. There is a bunch of mm. like, a lot of British white males. But, but, but were there a lot of ones who did like stacks and yeah, Motown yeah, and stuff the, like yeah, that? and the stacks and Motown, like everything. Uh-huh. But like how they didn't really get any credit for it. Yeah. Um, but I think the documentary does a really good job of placing them, like trying to reinsert them into history. Because mm-hmm. when you think of a song like, um, I always blank on the name of the song that the Stones do. That's like in every Scorsese movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, Sympathy for the Devil or the other one. Well, there's Sympathy for the Devil, but it's a. Uh, it goes like, da, da, da. Give me shelter. Give me shelter. Yeah. Yes, that's what it was. Yeah. How can I forget? Because that's also the name of one of Martin Scorsese's uh Yeah, and that song is good because of the part where they're like, Spray! Exactly, yeah. exactly. I mean, that stuff is still happening today. There's just um, a good piece that went up recently on, I think it's Vice, uh, or NoisyVice.com, mm. um, about Big Frida, who we've had on the show. You had Big Love Frida her. On? Yes, yes, she's great. We had her on back in the fall uh, f- to talk about her reality show. Um, but she's been featured recently in a few songs by prominent artists, Beyonce in Formation a couple of years ago, um, and now the Drake song, Nice For What. I want to know who motherfucking representing it here tonight. Hold on, hold on. And the bounce music, there's an interlude where the bounce part of that song comes in hard. It's like amazing. And bounce music is Big Frida. If you don't know who she is, is like the queen of bounce. She's a New Orleans uh, rapper slash artist. She's just amazing. If you ever get a chance to see her live, do it. But her voice is in these just songs. Just to interrupt quickly, my old rap group had done a few dates with her in New Orleans oh. opening, and it was uh, the whole time. Everybody's super nice because it was New Orleans and it wasn't that late at night. Mm. So everybody just watched respectfully. And then afterwards, we were like, wow, they were all, all really nice to us because we were like just walking around rapping for 20 minutes and then they <laughs> bounce feet. <laughs> she, there, New Orleans is, everyone's so nice there. Um, yeah. and, and drunk, and it's great. <laughs> um, but it was it's interesting cuz she's on the, her voice is in these songs but then she's not visible and it's mm. like why can't we see you mm. and as a queer personality and a very prominent queer personality it's weird to sort of um separate the voice from the body and and it's not that much different from the CNC factory huh. this like wait in the mm. music videos she, she's nowhere to be found it's so just her voice. credit. She's but like she, the, she doesn't even get the credit though. She's not like it's not Beyonce featuring Big really? Frida. It's not Drake featuring Big Frida. It's just these songs. So like, if you don't know who Big Frida is, you don't know that that's her voice. Why? I didn't know that was happening. Yeah, it's still happening. That's so weird to me because to me, Big Frida is like a big name that you'd want on a record, and there's a certain like legitimacy that comes with Big Frida being on the record. You would think so. I mean, for Drake, it seems a little more expected. <laughs> he, like, right, he, right. he jacks lots of people. Like, yeah. look, I like Drake, but... That's his thing. Kind he, of, that's yeah. kind of his thing. Whereas Beyonce, I'm kind of like, you're repping the South, and she's from the South, yes. and it's like, I would, you know, but... To Beyonce's defense, not that Beyonce needs any defending, Big Frida was in the formation when they were in, I think, New Orleans. That she was on stage with her. Yes, but how many people saw that? Like, it, there's a difference between the the video and like which millions of millions of people have seen, and like 
not everyone has seen the her, her on stage with her. And also in New Orleans, if like Big Frida wasn't on stage, I, I would imagine that's as big an insult as you could have because that's that's New Orleans and it's Big Frida. Exactly. Yeah. Like you can't, <laughs> she can't go to New Orleans and not have have yeah. Big Frida oh on stage. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I say all that to say that this stuff is still happening, and um, I think it's great that you brought those points up because it, it is like. The the voice is important, but also being seen is important. And that's part of, you know, why we do this show. And it's not really different from, uh, to bring it back to The Simpsons, I'm sorry, but like <laughs> having Hank Azaria still doing the voice in 2018 is, is, is just not okay. It's kind of incredible. Uh, I hate talking about The Simpsons t- at this point. But at we the we same don't time, have part, to. <laughs> but there is this one thing I find interesting with how whiteness works is that you, if you find a way to weasel out of whiteness, you take it. Like people are like, "Well, Hank Azaria is a Sephardic Jew, and so therefore he doesn't get, you know, he's not really white." So I find it amazing that you're denying him that. And I'm like, first of all, I'm not denying the fact he's a Sephardic Jew. I'm just saying that he benefits from whiteness. Mm-hmm. Like no one's around. Like, oh, Hank Azaria, that's the Sephardic Jew that does the voice <laughs> of. No, it's... same with Ben Kingsley playing right. Gandhi. Well, Ben Kingsley's half Indian. He so, is, but yeah. he's rarely ever coded as that in yes. movies, right? Like, I feel like Gandhi he changed his name to Ben Kingsley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think yeah. we, I think as uh, as a people, it seems like we gave him a pass. Mm-hmm. Like he, he became the racial Swiss Army knife and kind of got to make that a career a... <laughs> out of that, right? <laughs> yeah. That is interesting. The yeah. the idea of the racial Swiss Army knife because you coined that phrase in reference to Fred Armisen. I did. Mm. Yeah, because Fred Armisen, it almost was SNL's excuse to impersonate any race and try not to get in trouble. Because like Fred's uh, something, yeah, he has something yeah. that could work. Yeah. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you back, Hari, and oh to God. have you join us, Ashok. It's it's great to have you both on. And where can we people follow you on Twitter and all the social medias? I'm at Hari Kundabolu on Twitter, and Ashok's at Dapwell D A P W E L L. Even though Kundabolu is probably the harder one to spell. And uh, you can uh, go to KundaboluBrothers.com to listen to our podcast and see live dates. Season one is ending soon, um, but um, ho- hopefully when this comes out, you can see us on April 30th or May 1st at uh, at uh, Theater Off Jackson in Seattle or May 13th on Mother's Day at Littlefield. And I got stand-up dates, too. You can catch at HurryKundabolu.com. Also, my Netflix special, Warn Your Relatives, comes out May 8th. Awesome. I don't know if this is distasteful, but anytime someone tells me they have a Netflix series coming out, I'm like, how much did you get paid for it? Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) Not enough. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, (laughs) Gloop. This is so much fun. (laughs) And that's a wrap. So a couple of quick updates before we part. Because sometimes big things happen and you can't wait to address them. We'll be dropping two more brand new episodes in the next two weeks before we return to our regular schedule again in June. So be sure to check for them in your podcast feeds. You should also be sure to check out our new video series inspired by our pre-woke watching segments, including Verilyn's great recent episode on soul food. We'll put a link to it in the show page and we'll share future installments on our social media pages. Represent is produced by the lovely, awesome Verlyn Williams. Our social media assistant is Marissa Martinelli. And our intro-outro music is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>